We're at Mark uh, 10, 17 through 31 this evening. So we're up into Mark 10. Let me read this passage and then we'll pray together for our time in the Word. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed uh, followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother, or father, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, please use this word to challenge us, to be your disciples, help us to learn uh, how best to follow you, how to live in a way that honors you. Amen. Well, first things first, a question. Who comes to Jesus? What do we call this story? The rich young ruler. Why do we call him the rich young ruler? bit of a trick question. Mark tells us when he goes away that he was very rich, but nowhere does Mark tell us that he was either young or a ruler. Uh, Matthew tells us that he was young in his parallel account, and Luke tells us that he was a ruler, and so if we put all three together, we have a rich young ruler. All three say he was rich, but uh, that's, that's why we call this the rich young ruler. It's, it's the three accounts together. Well, Billy Graham, uh, talking about this story, says the young man came with the right question to the right man and received the right answer, but he made the wrong decision. Uh, 
Okay, with uh, due respect to Billy Graham, I don't think that's quite right. And I'll show you why in just a minute. The man comes running to Jesus and kneels before him, okay? He's off to the right start. He does come to the right man. He assumes the right posture, bowing before Jesus. He's enthusiastic. It's a promising start. But here's what I want us to consider. Is it the right question that he asks? Is this the question? What does he ask? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does that question presuppose? What's, what, what's that question assuming? Salvation by merit. There's something I can do to inherit eternal life. It's a matter of doing something, something we do. Well, in Jesus' response here, we see Jesus, the master teacher at work, and you might call it his judo strategy, using the sort of weight of the man's arguments against him or sort of throwing him off balance. Verse 18, Jesus starts by challenging his assumptions. Why do you call me good? Notice he's reframing the whole discussion here. It's not a discussion of uh, uh, what do you need to do, but what is God like and what are we like? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This man seems to be assuming that Jesus and he alike are good, at least good enough to inherit eternal life. And he wants to hear some reassuring word. You're doing it. Don't worry, you're on track. But Jesus reframes. He says, God alone is good. God's goodness, it's on a, you know, we talked about God's holiness this morning. It's on a plane beyond human goodness. Uh, this man that comes to Jesus does seem to be relatively good. Jesus doesn't question that he's kept the commandments. And yet it doesn't mean that he's on the level of God's goodness. Note, though, Jesus doesn't deny that it is right to call him good, to call Jesus good, but he asks, why do you call me good? What's your grounds for calling me good? What do you think's happening when you call me good? Do you understand why? So let's put the question to, uh, uh, you know, to a discussion. Reading Mark's gospel, especially if you've been here for the series and you're up to this point now in Mark's gospel, do you think it's fair to call Jesus good teacher? I mean, would Mark say, yeah, that's, that's an appropriate title for Jesus? Dan's saying good. Lulu's saying she's not quite sure. Craig's saying good, okay. <laughs> it's a bit of an understatement even. Yeah, I think, I think what, he's, what Jesus is driving home here is he's saying, it's right to call me good, but only God is good, and that should be raising questions about who you're talking to. Who do you think I am? Is it a good teacher? Only God's good, and you're saying I'm good. How does this fit together? Well, this line gets dropped until verse 27. It kind of goes, goes by the byway. This counter question, though, is in, uh, about God is intended to move beyond the questions uh, of self-justification, uh, self-reliance. It's saying, actually, let's reflect on what kind of God we are talking about here, what kind of goodness his goodness is, and what that means for us. In verse 19, Jesus does not endorse the assumption that we can do anything to inherit eternal life. He doesn't say, we'll do this, this, and this. But rather, he says, well, we know, here's what you already know. It's interesting what he lists. Commandments uh, of the Ten Commandments, Commandments 6, 7, 8, 9, this extra one, do not defraud, which is not stated in the law uh, so plainly, and yet clearly it's the, the uh, intent of many commands in Exodus and Deuteronomy not to defraud the poor. And then he comes back to number five, honoring your parents. That's the one positive command in this list. So he's, uh, here's five negative things don't do. Here's one positive thing 
should do. Perhaps he adds in this about defrauding the poor, recognizing that this man is well off, that that perhaps is a particular uh, risk that perhaps he may have defrauded the poor. The man responds, teacher, I have kept these from youth. Now note, neither Jesus nor Mark treats this response with skepticism. There's no hint or suggestion that this is hypocrisy or, or arrogance. Perhaps the man is naive in considering his own motives and kind of what's going on in his heart, but he seems to be genuine, if naive. Jesus, uh, notice, though, that Jesus is focusing on commands about things that we do or rather don't do. He doesn't include the 10th commandment about coveting, heart attitudes, and he doesn't mention commands 1 through 4 about our right relationship with God. Who are we worshiping? Are we worshiping him in the right manner? Uh, so it's interesting, he's focusing on the external the commands that are saying, here's external things that you don't do, and the guy checks off the list. He says, yes, I've kept all those from my youth. So, okay, we've got the baseline, but now we're moving beyond to the other commandments. Uh, what Jesus doesn't mention also is raising questions. What about his relationship with God and his heart attitudes? Jesus' response. Do you see his response here in verse 21? This man may be naive about his own heart, but he's genuine. Uh, Jesus looked at him. Uh, the word is literally, he looked intently. He uh, he scrutinized him. He gave him this intense look. I wonder what would that be like to have Jesus intensely look at you and consider you for a minute before responding. We're told he looked at him closely and loved him. As we're going to see from the following discussion, Jesus accurately perceives that this man's wealth is an idol in his heart that's going to cause roadblocks to following Jesus. He knows what's going on in this guy's heart. And yet, nevertheless, seeing his idols and temptations and his failures, nevertheless, he loves him. Jesus doesn't challenge that he's kept the law, but he says there's one thing you're lacking. Even if you've kept all these commands, there's still something missing. Now, bringing this together with the passage two weeks ago, the little children that come to Jesus, the children come with absolutely nothing. They have no possessions, no rights, no claim on Jesus, and yet coming empty-handed with nothing, they don't lack anything necessary to have the kingdom. Jesus says they're fit for the kingdom, although they have nothing. On the other hand, this man who has everything in this life comes to Jesus and yet lacks the one thing necessary. The one thing necessary. What is that one thing? Yeah, yeah. Putting Jesus above all things? Yeah, Chris? Yeah, yeah, I think I, what he's lacking is a personal relationship with Jesus. That he's, he's kept the external commands, but does he have a living relationship with Jesus? Uh, it's, it's a question we all need to wrestle with. You can be at church, you can keep all the commands, you're here morning and evening, you're singing the songs, you're doing all the things externally you're supposed to do, and yet you can be lacking the one thing, a real living relationship with Jesus. Do you see what Jesus offers? He says, sell everything, yet what do you have in return? You have me. Jesus says, take me in place of, uh, as a substitute for all your wealth. Okay, we read this in hindsight, not being personally challenged with this, and we think, he made the wrong decision. And yet I wonder, I was thinking about this as I was preparing, if, if 
somehow I knew definitively that God was saying, you know what, give up your house and car, give, you know, sell them, give the money to the poor, and go live at the Lighthouse Mission and serve me there as a homeless person living at the Lighthouse Mission. Would I do it? Knowing that I have Jesus, I don't know that I would do it. I mean, it's a, it's a challenge. Uh, you know, could, could, if Jesus called you to pick up uh, here the world there, could you do it? It's a challenge. Well, the man's response is he's disheartened, he's sorrowful, he went away. Uh, Billy Graham says he made the wrong decision. I, I'm, I'm not sure Mark's quite so closed on that. He goes away sad. He sees the cost of discipleship, but it, it's left open what his ultimate fate is. But note that riches don't help discipleship. So Jesus looks around him. That's an interesting phrase. It's used six times in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus looking around, sizing up the situation. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. He sizes up the situation and he understands that the disciples don't understand. The basic assumption is that wealth is a sign that God has blessed someone. And in a sense, that's true. All that we have in this life is a blessing from God, who every good and perfect gift comes from. But just because God blesses someone with wealth doesn't mean that that person is in right standing with God. It doesn't uh, take very long reading the news to see headlines full of rich people who clearly are not in right standing with God. And so to make that second assumption, riches equal right standing, is a mistake. So he looks around to see if they too are going to be offended by this, or, or, or they too will leave. In some ways, this passage is just as offensive as the passage from John 6 that we read this morning, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Okay? It's, it, it, uh, it's almost just as offensive to say, actually, the wealth means nothing for a disciple. And so he warns them how hard it will be for the wealthy to enter the kingdom. Notice here, the initial question in verse 17 is, how do I have eternal life? Verse 23, Jesus starts talking about entering the kingdom. And then in verse 26, the disciples say, then who can be saved? The three ideas seem to be uh, uh, synonymous in this passage, that they can be used interchangeably. Uh, 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 inheriting eternal life, entering the kingdom, and being saved. I think what Jesus is setting up here uh, uh, saying how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. I guess the best picture I can think of, and this is not an endorsement of this TV show. In fact, I would say, don't bother. I felt like it was kind of disappointing. But uh, 1883, it's about wagon train coming across to uh, Wyoming, Montana from the, the East Coast. And in one scene, uh, the uh, uh, what's his name, Lonesome Dove? I can't think of off the top of my head. I, I, with the mustache and the, anyways. Uh, <laughs> anyways, whatever his name is. Uh, 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 the old... Uh, no, maybe second. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, the old cowboy's coming along to the, the, these guys on the wagon train. He he's, starts going through the stuff they have in their wagons, and they have like a piano and a full furniture set and all this stuff. And he's saying, you've got to dump this. You won't even be able to afford the river if you have all this stuff in your wagon. And they're saying, no, we can't leave this behind. And the, in a sense, that's the picture Jesus is saying here, is if you want to make it into the kingdom, the land on the other side, you've got to be willing to let go of the stuff here. But if you're clinging tight to the stuff here, you're never going to make it to the, the destination where you're trying to go. And uh, the people with the piano end up all dying trying to ford the river. And that's, anyway, so that, uh, now you know the whole show and you don't have to bother watching it. But, uh, uh, and I would say, yeah, yeah, probably a waste of time. We can talk about that at dinner. But uh, that's kind of the picture is if you're going somewhere else, you're emigrating to a far land and you're clinging to the things here, it actually makes it difficult 
to get to the final destination. That's what Jesus is saying is, is how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. They're burdened down with these things here. Well, the disciples, their, their response is they're amazed. They're astounded. And so Jesus makes the point even more generally. Children, that's an interesting address. He has compassion. He recognizes this is a hard teaching point for them. And so he's, he's going slow with them. He's saying it gently. But he says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult for anybody. Difficult for anybody to enter the kingdom of God. And then he uses this picture. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And this lesson is just as hard for us to get our heads around as it is for the disciples to get their heads around. And part of the evidence for that is all the different ways that preachers through the years have tried to get around the plain force of this. And so uh, uh, reference is sometimes made to a alleged gate called the eye of the needle and camels had to take all their baggage off to get through or something like that. Uh, the earliest reference we have to any gate maybe, maybe he doesn't mean a camel but this is what the word for rope means which doesn't really get you that far because you can't thread a needle with a rope any more than with a camel. I mean Jesus really is in a humorous hyperbole saying this is how hard it is. See the camel? See the needle? Doesn't fit. And disciples get the sense of this. They understand. They're exceedingly astonished and they say, then who can be Then who can be saved? This guy did all the law. He has done things right. And God has blessed him. And he's, 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 he's a moral, upstanding citizen. Who then can be saved? It's the reality. When our life is put together, things are going well, we don't recognize our need of Jesus. I remember uh, uh, when I was at school up at Regent in Vancouver, a church planner was trying to plant a church. I can't remember the name of the neighborhood, but down by the airport kind of, and it's a nice newer neighborhood that's on the water, um, uh, up and coming, uh, 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 upwardly mobile, younger families. And I remember one of my professors commenting, that is in a much harder area to plant a church than East Vancouver, because there, everybody's, you know, they're getting promotions, their income's growing, their kids are doing well. They think it's all put together, they don't need Jesus. But go to East Van, where everybody's on drugs, their life's falling apart, they're living on the street. You can start a church of 100 people next Sunday if you go, because those people know they need Jesus. It's a challenge. The disciples now are asking the right question. If the well-off, perfectly moral can't be saved, or can't enter the kingdom, then who can be saved? It's a challenge for many of us. Many of us kind of fit that demographic. Fairly comfortable, uh, fairly moral. Uh, we can pat ourselves on the back. Oftentimes, you know, we're kind of in that zone. Verse 27, again, Jesus looks intently. It's that same scrutinizing look that he gives to this young man. He looks at them intently and here is the key verse. He returns to the question of theology, what we think God is like. With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. From this verse alone, we, we can derive the doctrines of grace. That is to say that our salvation doesn't depend on us. It's not about something we can do. In fact, Jesus he says how difficult it is. He says, Let's cut to the chase. It's impossible with man, and yet it's possible with God. It's not about us, but it's about the God who can do all things. It's not about how good we are. It's about how good God is. So being saved, eternal life, entering the kingdom of God, it is impossible with man, but possible with God. 
And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm coming to work. This is the work I'm coming to do. And so if I did sermon titles, I might say Mission Impossible is, is the work here. That it's, it, it is impossible for man. And yet somehow Jesus is going to accomplish that. Well, Peter's forthright as ever. Okay, he's adding things up. He's saying this guy kept the law better than us. Uh, he's more well off than us. Uh, okay, are we going to make it then, Jesus? And so he's saying, Jesus, we left everything behind. What about us? We've left everything and followed you. Well, you've got to love Peter. He's, he's forthright. He speaks his mind. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and brothers and sisters. I think I, I, I'm going to get stuck in a loop reading the same line over and over here. Uh, uh, children and lands. And notice all those blessings with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Uh, two observations here, and then, and then we're just about to done. Actually, three observations. Uh, first, for my sake, for the sake of following Jesus and for the gospel, seems to be saying for the sake of the church, the, the, the message we proclaim. Uh, he holds those two together. The second observation is that I think what Jesus is getting on about here is well illustrated in the book of Acts. Think about Paul's life. He was well-established as a Pharisee, yet he leaves all that behind. He loses his former friends. He leaves his house behind. He doesn't have a wife or family. He leaves all that behind, leaves his own land behind. And yet at the same time, if you think through the book of Acts, how many houses is Paul hosted in? How many people invite him into his home as a family member? How many meals is he shared uh, with? And also, how much persecution does he endure? We see this dynamic play out in Paul's life and Peter's life and other apostles' life through the book of Acts. What it looks like. On the one hand, there is real things lost when you embark on following Jesus, and yet there's real things gained. You look around and you see you have gained a family. Uh, You've gained a home, in a sense. And then just the last observation, verse 31, but many who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. It's what sometimes... uh, scholars will call a floating saying of Jesus because it's used, you know, a half dozen times in the Gospels in different occasions. And most likely, it's because this upside down, this uh, simple summary of the upside down kingdom ethic is so memorable. I'm sure Jesus used it multiple times. Okay, so he's coming back to this truth again and again. He's saying, remember, the many who are first will be last and the last will be first. That's how this makes sense. It's upside down. You've lost all this and yet look what you've gained. And it's that upside down kingdom ethic. Any other comments? That's, that's what I have from this passage. Yeah, Jesse. Yeah. Yeah, and that he, he lists persecution almost as being one of the blessings. <laughs> I think, uh, I'll, I'll pass on that blessing, please. I'll take the others, but uh, yeah. Yeah, Lulu. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's our natural instinct, and I think it's actually even a good instinct, is we want to trust people. And I think that that's, you know, apart from sin, we'd love to trust each other, right? Uh, sin factors into the equation, though, but, but it's just our natural tendency to, to find some, you know, if it's your parents, if it's a, a minister you admire, what, you know, whatever it is, to find some fixed point and say, well, that is a good person that's reliable and I can trust them. And yet, like you're saying, everybody, uh, you know, don't make me your fixed point because I will fail. <laughs> that's the truth. Uh, hopefully not in a cataclysmic way that destroys the church, but, uh, you know, I sin too. Uh, just ask my kids if you think, have any illusions about that. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, that, yeah, it's, it's our tendency that we want to trust people, and that's a good thing, and yet we want to treat them as being good in the way that only God's good. And so, yeah, relying on, trusting on God. Yeah, yeah, that's a great observation. Yeah, uh, awesome. Yeah. But look what he's saying. If you've given these things up for my sake and the sake of the gospel, even if you lose everything because you're committed to following me, you're going to get this stuff back. But it's the commitment to Jesus, not the sacrifice. It's my sake and the gospel's sake. But that's, that's the linchpin there. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Yeah. 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 That's an important um, uh, a point. That it's not an endorsement of the way of poverty. That if you're poor, you're automatically right with God. Um, Exodus makes this point because it's saying uh, in the law, it's warning judges don't take a bribe from the rich, but also don't presuppose that the poor is automatically right in a conflict. If it's a rich person and poor person in a, in a, in a lawsuit, and I think that applies just as well to spiritual dynamics that. Uh, assuming one way or the other, um, that, yeah, I have friends who, with the queen dying, they're saying, well, she's rich, so she's a bad person. There's, it's that simple, and you think, well, that kind of <laughs> easy moral rubric doesn't make a lot of sense. As far as I understand, the queen was actually fairly pious in her personal devotion, so um, I think probably we'll meet her in heaven. It would be my, my take on things, but again, I'm not a pope, so I, I'm not making the calls on that, but yeah, Chan. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so he doesn't, it's not loving him doesn't lead him to soft pedal things. It's like, I love you and therefore it's going to be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, uh, Lefty. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the tension of Proverbs. You can be pull Proverbs out of the rest of Scripture that you know, it's an investment strategy, that you do these things and everything's going to work out. But then you read Job and you realize, hang on a second. And then you read Jesus' own biography. Uh, that's not, it doesn't always work in one relation. Even generally, the average size to a stable life, temporal blessing. Yeah, yeah. That's the one Deuteronomy keeps coming back to, too. That you're being able to me and so you will this land and going well, then you're going to forget me. <laughs> so be careful not to forget me when things are going well. That, uh, uh, yeah. Our hearts are fickle uh, and deceitful above all things. Isn't that what we read in Proverbs? Great. Thank you, guys. Let's turn then to our time of prayer. Um,